I want to tell you something that I know that you know, but I want us to affirm it out loud together. You don't need to say it out loud with me, but I want to say it out loud, and then I'm going to ask you to say it to your neighbor. It's a really simple truth, but we need to never forget it, and it's this. It is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. If you believe that, would you shout amen? It's good news. Tell your neighbor, help me, tell your neighbor, the gospel of Jesus is good news. Tell them like you believe it. The gospel of Jesus is good news. And it is. In fact, many of you know that the word gospel means that very thing. It means good news. But it actually means a little bit more than that. It means a message that is good. Or another way to say it is it means good news that is communicated or that is shared. The Greek word that's translated in your English New Testament into the word gospel uh, is a word which in the middle you'll find the word angel. It's euangelio or euangelion. And it, in the middle of that word you hear angel or we would say angel. And an angel, by definition, the word means a messenger. So the gospel is a message of good news. It is a good message that we share. And I think you would agree with me that we're living in a time when people around us, our community, our nation, certainly our world, could use some good news. Don't you think so? I mean, there's so many um, instances of bad news that we're constantly inundated with. I don't even need to go through the list. You know them. Wars and rumors of wars and rising crime and, and a divided land and a divided world. And there's so much bad news in the world that we should recognize, we as the people of God should recognize that we carry, we hold a message which is desperately needed in these dark days, these days of bad news. In fact, the news in the world is so bad, the outlook is so filled with fear and anxiety that when we carry the message of good news, it's like a cool drink of refreshing water. And that imagery of good news being like water is in fact a biblical image. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 25 and verse 25. It says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And I have to say to you, this is what the gospel is. It is good news from a far country. It's good news from heaven. Good news from heaven to this world filled with bad news. And I want to remind you that this is our great privilege as the people of God. It's our great privilege as followers of Jesus to carry this good news of the gospel everywhere that we go. Now here's why the gospel is good news. I said to you that the word means a good message or a message of good news that is communicated. Well, what is so good about the gospel? Well, we know that the word gospel or that the definition of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that's what the gospel is. Christ has died for our sins. Christ was buried and Christ has risen from the dead. That is the gospel. And that is good news because this crucified and risen Christ will meet anyone. He can meet 
everyone who will come to him in the places of our brokenness and give us a brand new life. This is what Jesus does. He takes what is dead and brings it to life. He takes what is broken and he heals it. He takes what is spiritually empty and he fills it with himself and he does this new work of grace in our lives. And I want to tell you, you are surrounded by people who need that fresh work of grace. And in fact, we are all in that camp as well. We all need God's fresh grace in our lives. Even after we meet Jesus, we need God's fresh grace in our lives in an ongoing way, really every single day of our lives. Have you ever said anything like this? Have you ever said, man, I just need to, I need a fresh start. You know, I... I've been on this path for this long. I've been in this valley for this long. I've been in this situation for so long. You know what I need? I, I just need a new beginning. I just need a fresh start. Well, I want to tell you, Jesus delights in giving people fresh starts. God delights in giving us new beginnings. In fact, in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, he promised this. Listen to what he says there. Ezekiel 36, 26 He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give to you a heart of flesh. God says, here's what I can do for your life. I can take that old cold, stony heart out of you. That heart that's full of rebellion and that heart that's full of pride and that heart that's full of anger or discouragement. I can take that hard heart out of you and I can replace it with a soft heart. He says a heart of flesh. I can replace it with a soft heart and I will put within you a new spirit. That's the promise of God. That whatever you walked in here carrying today, you don't have to carry out. Listen to this pastor. That whatever death you walked in here out of, you can walk out of this room in life today. That whatever you left at home this morning, not wanting to face when you go back, you can face it with a new heart and a new spirit and a new hope when you leave here because this is what God specializes in doing. He does this through the work of Christ and there's no other way that it happens It only happens when we come to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul explains that in the New Testament. He describes how God takes this stony heart out and puts in a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. Listen to the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. When we come to faith in Christ, watch this, we come to faith in Jesus, we trust our lives to him, we trust our eternity to him. When we do that, he replaces our old heart with a new heart, he puts his spirit within, gives us a new spirit, he makes us anew, a new creation in Christ, and he gives us a new purpose and a new life. And do you know what? That is good news. Now, the news of the world is to say, well, look, your situation is bad or your issues are what they are. Just do the best you can, work really hard, and maybe you'll be okay. That's not the message of the church. The message of the church is a new life with a new heart and a new spirit and a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's the good news that the world is hungry for. Now, when he does that, by the way, 
when God does that work of that new work within us and he makes us a new person in Christ, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Well, all of those things that I'm describing, a new heart, a new spirit, a new life, that's all internal, isn't it? That, that's, those are the things that God does within us. They're, they're in, our, in our heart, in our lives. They're not visible on the outside. So God's working on the inside. But the question is, how does that new thing that I am on the inside, how does that become obvious or observable on the outside? Well, it ought to be observable by the way that we live, right? We ought to live differently once we meet Jesus, and that's evidence. But there's another way. There is a symbol which God has ordained, which is an outward expression, an outward proclamation of the inward renewal that is ours when we meet Jesus. And that symbol in which we ought to participate is the symbol of baptism, In fact, this evening, I'm excited to tell you that we are going to be baptizing somewhere between 40 and 50, I think it's 44, 45, people who have been renewed recently by Christ, and today they are going to get in the creek this evening, and we are going to baptize them. And by the way, you ought to be here, because if your church is going to baptize 45 people, you ought to be standing on the creek bank celebrating as they're all baptized. But we're going to baptize 45 people who have come to Christ and been made new on the inside, and they're going to make an outward expression, an outward declaration of the change that Christ is working in their lives. And I want to challenge you. Maybe you need to join them tonight. If you've never come to faith in Christ, you need to give your life to Jesus this morning and just jump into that baptism. Just join us in the creek and we'll baptize you. Maybe you need to recommit your life to the Lord today and join us in the water as well. We'll talk about that as we go forward. But it's this thing of baptism, which has prompted me to ask you to turn to Romans chapter number six. And so you've got your Bibles open there. Let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 1, Romans chapter 6 says this. Paul asks, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to live in sin that grace may abound? Now he's making the point, God's got grace for all of our sin, but he's asking the question, once we meet Jesus, can we or should we continue to live in sin? Now you you ought to think about that question. It's an important question. He says, once I've been made new, should I continue to live like the old me? Once once I've come to faith in Christ, should I continue to act like the person that I was before I met Christ? That's the question. And the answer is very clear in verse number two. God forbid. No way. I can't continue to live the same way. Why not? He says in verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't you know, verse 3, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now stop right there. Let me make sure you understand. Verse number 3 is not speaking of water baptism. It's speaking of spirit baptism. In verse 3, he's saying, don't you know that when you came to faith in Jesus, you were baptized into Christ? The word baptized means to be immersed in. And so when we came to faith in Christ, we trusted in his death. If this is Christ on the cross, I came and trusted in his death and his death covered me. 
His death became my death. His death was counted. His punishment counted for me. I was immersed in the death of Christ. That's why he says we died to that old life, that old sinful life. So he goes on in verse number four to say, therefore, because we have been uh, buried in, the, in baptism with Christ, baptized into his death, therefore, we, then are bapt- we are buried with him by baptism into death. Verse four is talking about water baptism. Because I have died to my old life, in water baptism, symbolically, I am buried in the same way that Christ was buried. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ, or in the same way as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. If you are listening, I want you to shout amen. I need to take a quick survey And I want you to answer with your affirmative amen if you believe this. Here's the question. How many of you believe, according to verse number four, that Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father? Do you believe it? In the same way. Look at verse four. In the same way that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we who have been raised with Christ should walk in newness. There's the word. In newness of life. That God wants to do a new thing in my life to take the old me and make me new. To take my dead spiritual self and make me alive. To take my stony heart out and replace it with a heart of flesh. To take my dead spirit and make it alive by his indwelling Holy Spirit. To make me a new creation so that I can live a new life. This is what is promised to us in the gospel. And this is why the gospel is good news. God wants to do a new thing. Now, this is the reason that I've asked you as well to turn to Isaiah chapter number 43. And if you want to go ahead and make your way there to that chapter you've been holding your place in, I want to read to you in just a moment in verse number 19 out of Isaiah chapter number 43, where God makes a promise about giving us a new start, a fresh start. Before we read that verse, though, do you mind if I take just a few minutes and talk to you about, uh, maybe if I can just say it this way, if I can give you a 30,000-foot view of God's relationship with Israel. Let me take you up 30,000 feet and give you an overview of God's relationship to Israel. Let me begin by telling you that if you think about Israel as a person, you know, illustrate the nation of Israel as, as one person, we would say that Israel was conceived, just like a person is conceived, Israel was conceived in Genesis chapter number 12. In this moment when God comes to a man by the name of Abram, he'll later become Abraham, but his name in Genesis 12 is Abram, and God comes to him and reveals himself to Abram. Now listen, Abram was not a Christian. Can we agree there were no Christians in Genesis 12, right? He wasn't even a Jew. There was no such thing as a Jewish person in Genesis chapter number 12. Abram was a pagan. He was. He didn't know the Lord. His parents worshiped the sun and the moon. He was a pagan. And yet God in absolute unmerited favor in absolute grace, God steps into his life and reveals himself to him as the one true God. 
And then he says to Abram, I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me, believe in me and follow me. And if you will, here's what I will do. If you will follow me, he says, I will do three things. Number one, I will make of you a great nation. Now, Abraham or Abram and Sarah had no children. They were both old. They couldn't have children. But God said, I'm going to let her conceive and she's going to have a baby. And from that one son, you're going to have a multitude of descendants and you will be, your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. I'm going to make you a great nation. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to give you sons and daughters. Secondly, I'm going to give your sons and daughters a land. They're going to live in this land that I've chosen for them. Number three, through your people in that land, I'm going to bless the whole world. And we call this the Abrahamic covenant. And because Abraham believed God, he enters into this relationship with him. And in that moment, Israel as a nation, they're not yet born, but they're conceived by faith in Abraham's heart. Now, Abraham and Sarah had one son whose name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons whose names were Jacob and Esau. And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that these two were in constant conflict with each other, these two brothers. And ultimately, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. He he took the place of inheritance. He stepped in front of Esau to gain the family inheritance from his father. And when he did so, he did this out of his character because he, by his character, was a liar and a deceiver. In fact, did you know that the name Jacob means that? It means deceiver, supplanter, the one who takes what doesn't belong to him. So he, he tricks his father Isaac, he tricks Esau, and he takes the birthright. And, and Esau says to Jacob, I will kill you for what you've done. And so Jacob ran for his life. He literally fled Went and lived in another country with other people. He met his wives and began his family. And for 20 years, Jacob was away, estranged from his family. After 20 years, in Genesis 32, God says the craziest thing to Jacob you could ever imagine. Here's what he said. He said, Jacob, I want you to go home. I want you to go back and meet up with Esau. I want you to face what you've done. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Hear me. If you belong to the Lord, no matter how far you run or how long you stay, he will never, ever stop telling you to go and deal with what you've left behind. He will always call you back. Well, he says, I, I want you to go home and I want you to, to face Esau. And Jacob says, Esau will kill me. And he said, trust me, and I want you to go and meet him. So he does. He makes his way back on the night before he is to meet with Esau, convinced Esau is going to kill him. He's wrestling with God all night long. You ever had a night like that, by the way, where you got to face something in the morning and you just wrestle with God all night long? Well, he's wrestling with God all night long. And in the morning, he says, bless me. I need you to bless me. And God says this. He asks him this question. What is your name? Now, loved ones, God never asks questions to get information. Amen. He always knows the answer. He always asks questions to bring us face to face with the reality. And so he says to Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. My name is deceiver. My name is liar. My name is supplanter. And God says, okay. Now, by the way, here's another principle. That if you belong to the Lord, if you want him to bless you, he will bless you only when you get honest with him. And so he says, my name is Jacob. And God says, because you've been honest with me, listen carefully, no longer shall you be called Jacob. Your name shall now be called 
Israel. And in that moment, the nation is born. In that moment, Israel is born. Even the word is born in that moment. Jacob went on to have 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. The family, the the nation began to grow in keeping with God's promise. Most of you know they ended up down in Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were delivered out of Egypt uh, by Moses. And once they came out of Egypt, God brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them their law. And in Exodus chapter number 19, here's what God said to them. He said, now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the nations. We call this the Mosaic Covenant. God said, if you will walk with me, if you will keep my word, you will be my peculiar people, special to me out of all the nations of the earth. And so is born the nation of Israel. Now here's what's true of Israel. It's the same thing that's true of us. It is that Israel as a nation had a wandering heart, just like you and I do. Our hearts tend to wander away from the Lord. We tend to, we get distracted by the world and the things in the world and our desires for the things in the world. We get discouraged with circumstances. We, our eyes start kind of moving away from the Lord and looking at all the, the situations around us. We get covered up with fear because we're watching the news more than we're reading our Bibles and our hearts just get distracted. Just like Israel's heart got distracted. And so in order to help Israel's heart stay focused on the Lord, God raised up prophets. And throughout their history, God gave them prophets to proclaim to them what was true, to correct them when they were wrong, to guide them into walking into the truth, to encourage them when they were discouraged. And one of those prophets, in fact, the most notable of all of Israel's prophets was the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus And this prophet was for sure the most prolific of the prophets. Sometimes Isaiah is called the messianic prophet because so much of his prophecies point forward to Jesus and so many of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life are recorded in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is certainly the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, the most quoted Old Testament prophet that you read of in the New Testament. And he was faithful to preach the truth to Israel. And here was his message, essentially. He preached to them about warning about sin and promise about forgiveness. In fact, it's interesting. He said to them, if you will, if you will walk with the Lord, you will be blessed. But if you refuse to walk with the Lord, God will punish you. And he will send you into captivity. And it's interesting, when you look at the book of Isaiah, you can divide it very similarly to the way that your Bible is divided. You know, there are 66 books in your Bible where there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And the first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah are chapters of warning. And the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are chapters of promise. In the same way that your Bible is divided, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Isaiah promised them that even though they would end up in captivity, that God would be merciful to them. Now, he lived about 100 years before they went into Babylonian captivity, but he saw that captivity. He warned them of it, and he promised them that God would bring them out of it. So with all of that background, let me just read to you one verse. I'm in Isaiah chapter number 43. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and make your way there. Isaiah 43, listen to verse number 19. Here's God's promise. Behold... Speaking to Israel, he says, I will do a new 
thing. If you have your pen, would you circle those two words or that promise? I will do a new thing. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, and shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the desert, a highway or a road in the desert, and river in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. Here's God's promise to Israel. I am going to do something new. And the new thing that he promised in the first place in Isaiah 43 is his promise, God's promise to Israel. When you, when you read this verse, you first of all need to understand its direct application as applying to Israel in their captivity. Now, this prophecy spoke into their captivity where they languished for 70 years. They were taken into captivity in Babylon. 70 years past, they'd known nothing but slavery, nothing but captivity in the land of Babylon, ultimately in Persia. And God promised them that he would deliver them, but they didn't believe it. In fact, let me direct your attention back to Isaiah chapter number 40. Look at verse number 27. Again, speaking into their discouragement and captivity, he says in chapter 40, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, And speak, O Israel. Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? My judgment is passed over from my God. He says, why are you saying that? Verse 28, don't you know? Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, who is the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't faint. He is not weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He says, why do you say that I don't know what's going on with you? I know exactly what's going on with you. You ever said that? You ever been in a situation where you've said, God, why have you forgotten about me? God, why would you let this happen in my life? Lord, where are you? Why do you not see what's going on in my life? And God would say the same to you as he said to Israel. Why do you say that? I am the creator of the ends of the earth. I am the Lord. I know all things. Nothing happens to you that I don't know about. And he goes on to say in verse number 20, 29, he gives power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Verse 31, you know well. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. God says to Israel in captivity, listen, here's, I know that you're discouraged and I know that you're in a bad place, but I'm going to do something new. And here's what it is. You're going to rise up out of your captivity. You're going to rise up out of your brokenness. You're going to have strength like a young man. You're going to soar on wings like eagles. And I'm going to redeem you from your brokenness and from your captivity. When he said in chapter 43, verse 19, I'm going to do a new thing. He was in the first place speaking to Israel, but in the second place, write this down somewhere, that this new thing is God's promise to the world in Christ. It's not only a promise that he's going to restore Israel to their land, but it looks forward to the incarnation of Jesus. In fact, I was just reading to you out of chapter number 40. Let me take you to chapter 40 and verse number 3. Listen to what he says there. Well, chapter 40, verse 1, he says, Be comforted, O my people. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Cry unto her that her warfare is over. I'm going to do this new thing. Look at verse number 3. Isaiah says, I am the voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Does it sound familiar to you? Have you read that somewhere else in your Bible? Maybe in the New Testament. Maybe in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 23, where John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing and the Pharisees come to him and say, who are you? What are you doing? What gives you the right? Who are you? And he answered them with this verse. He quoted Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Listen, when John the Baptist was asked about his ministry, he appropriated Isaiah's prophecy to the time of Jesus Christ. When God says, I'm going to do a new thing, he's not only promising a new thing for Israel in captivity 2,700 years ago. He's promising a new thing for the world in Christ. He says, I'm going to make, in chapter 43, verse number 19, I will make a way in the highway in the wilderness, highway in the wilderness and I will make, uh, send rivers through the desert. He's talking about this gospel thing, this grace thing that Christ would bring to the earth. So God made a promise to Israel, I'm going to deliver you. God made a promise to the world, I'm going to send rivers of grace through the desert of the world. If you can imagine, think with me for a minute about a, a, a map of the world on your, on your wall. You've got 200 nations and you've got these powerful nations, billions of people. And in the middle of that map, there would be a tiny little nation called Israel. The size of New Jersey, a few million people compared to billions around the world. And God says in Isaiah 43, this world, all these nations surrounding Israel, the entire world, it's a desert. A desert of Gentile nations, a desert of sin and hopelessness. But from this little nation that I called in Abraham, I'm going to send forth rivers of gospel grace that will run around the world. That's the promise. He says it's God's promise to Israel, it's God's promise to the world. But then lastly, when he says in chapter 43, verse number 19, I will do a new thing. This new thing is God's promise to me. And it's his promise to you. Now I want you to hear me. I don't know what you brought in here this morning. I don't know who is the true person sitting in that chair that you're sitting in. I mean, I know we all put on a face and we all can be pretty good at pretending. But the truth behind that facade, I don't know what all that is, but here's what I know. That God is so gracious and he is so merciful and he is so committed to doing a new thing in us that if you will let him, he will send the person out of here that will be new and different from the person that came in here. Whatever your sin is, whatever your past is, whatever your present is, God says, I can do something new for you. I can change your life. Whatever bondage you carried in here, whatever addictions are clinging on to your life that you have tried to shake and you can't, here's what God says. I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to send rivers into your desert and I'm going to make your life new if you'll let me do it. I don't know what your marriage is like. Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse right now. Maybe not. Maybe they're not here with you. But maybe you're sitting next to your husband or your wife and the truth is, you're hanging on by a thread. You're not even sure you want to hang on anymore. I just want you to hear me. That God wants to do a new thing in your marriage. He wants to make it fresh and new and give it a new heart and a new spirit. He can do it. 
Because the promise to do a new thing is God's promise for you. It's his promise to me. It's his promise to our family. It's his promise to our kids and our relationships. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. Now notice what verse number 18 says. He says, in ver- I'm in chapter 43, verse 18. He says, don't remember the former things, neither consider the things of old. This new thing that God wants to do, he says, what I will do will be better than what has been. What I will do will be better than what has been. He says, what I will do in your life will be so transformative, so new, that your former life will seem like a different lifetime ago. You won't even need to think about it anymore because I've redeemed you from it completely. It'll be better than what has been. If you don't like the way life has been going, he says, I'll do something that will be better than what has been. Secondly, he says, what I will do will come about by my power and my power alone. Chapter 43, verse number 19, behold, I will do, not you will do, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. God says, I'm going to do something that's just going to come by my power into your life. Let's get honest. Some of us have tried a thousand times to start fresh. And we keep faltering and falling and stumbling. And we have to keep starting over. And we've maybe decided, I can't do it. I can't set myself free. I can't fix myself. I can't fix my relationships. I have tried and I can't do it. He says, when I do it, it doesn't come by your turning over a new leaf or getting better. It comes by my power miraculously. I'll do a new thing. He says, it'll be better than what has been and it will be by my power alone. Number three, he says in verse number 19, it will be clear when I do this new thing. It will be clear for all to see. Verse number 19, behold, I do a new thing. Now shall it not spring forth? Shall you not know it? You will see it. God says, I don't work in subtle ways. I work in profound ways that will be obvious for you to see and for others around you to see. And then verse number 21, he says, what I will do will result in my praise. Verse 21, these people have I formed for myself and they shall show forth my praise. Now, he's referring to Israel specifically, called them out of the world to be his people of praise, but he's also speaking to the church, the body of Christ. We exist to the praise of God, but he's also speaking to all of us because we're all created in the image of God. We all are to give praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, the Bible says. And so here's what God says. You were made for me. You may have been living for you, but you were made for me. And if you'll let me, I'm going to do a new thing in your life that's going to be better than your past. It's going to transform your life. It's going to be to my praise. And it's going to happen by my power. But it only comes, this only new thing comes through Jesus Christ. Make you a new creature. Give you a new heart and a new spirit and a new life. If you will trust in me. And so, you're going to let him do the new thing. Or are you going to walk out of here into the same thing that you walked in here from?